you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we are going to get there uh, a little bit later in the message here. We are starting a new series today that we have called Glory, all right? Uh, This past spring and summer, uh, we took something like 15 or 16 weeks, and we went through the book of Acts, all right? And if you aren't familiar with the book of Acts, uh, it is the story of of, uh, this whole Christianity and idea of the church began, right? It's like uh, Jesus left, and it's what does his disciples and his followers do after that. That's the book of Acts. And as we went through the book, something became more and more obvious to me, uh, and it was actually creating a lot of tension in my life. And that tension is still there. Uh, Our modern day idea of church, I think, is so incredibly different from what we see in the Bible. All right, and maybe you felt a little bit of that tension if you were part of that series. Uh, I think also along with that, our modern idea of just following Jesus seems to be quite different. Now, I'm okay with church looking a little bit different from what it did. I think we have to be able to contextualize things and, and understand that we're in a different time period. But following Jesus, that's where I start to kind of question, like, okay, maybe there's some differences, but should those actually be there or not? And when I read through this, I, I, see, I see and I hear uh, just this, this desperation that people had. They were so focused, they were so devoted, and, and to be honest, I, I feel like I just don't see that same level, at least in myself. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll let you put yourself in that spot if you want to, but for me, like, I don't feel like I, I always have that same level of devotion that I see. And I feel like across the board in the American church, like, we're just, we're coming up short somewhere. Now, here's the thing, like, we could easily excuse this away and say, well, it was 2,000 years ago, like, things are going to be different. Um, it can't be the same way today as it was back then. Um, and I think that idea, like I said, holds a little bit of weight. But I don't think it can explain everything. And here's where it really started to bother me. The more and more I hear stories from around the world of followers of Jesus and what their lives look like, the more obvious it has become that, that something has gone wrong here. Like we're missing something. All right, what I mean by that is I hear stories of Christians in, in China and in Jordan and India and Thailand and Vietnam and Egypt or Saudi Arabia and, and the way that they live their lives, the focus and the devotion and the desperation that they seem to have, um, I think it looks way more like what the early church does than what I feel like it does in my life. And, and this, this has just been a, a tension for me. And I don't think it's just because it's 2,000 years later because that's happening right now in other parts of the world. That their Christianity seems to look more like what I see in the Bible than what mine does. And so I think that there's something that's going on in our modern understanding in the Western world that is hindering us. Because people in other parts of the world don't seem to be struggling with the same things that we are. And I want us to dig into this over the next few weeks. And here's the thing. I I don't have a bunch of nicely worded answers for this. This is something that God has been working in me. This is something that God has been working in Pastor Kyle and in our staff. And how many of you guys know that when God is still working in you on something, you just, you don't always know the answers and you're kind of, you reach a spot and you're like, oh, I think I figured it out. And a week later, you look back and laugh and you're like, I didn't have any clue what was going on. And I feel like I'm still in that process. 
but I want us as a church to kind of just jump into this together. I, I want us to, to try and press into this process. And so here's a couple of things that come to my mind immediately when I think about the first century church uh, or brothers and sisters in Christ around the world versus me and where I'm at. Okay, like, first off, I, I have everything that I need. I do. And, and I'm going to venture to guess that everybody in this room does as well. I don't have to ask God to give me my daily bread because I have my weekly bread in the fridge and I have my monthly bread in the freezer. Right? Like, I, I'm not relying on God every single morning when I wake up in that same type of way. Like, the, the levels of wealth that we operate are so different from, from the majority of Christians around the world. The level of safety at which I live with is incredibly different. I, I have medications. I have a hospital down the road. Uh, my sister is a pharmacist who I can call at basically any moment of any day and ask advice from. Like the level of, of safety that I have in my life, the level of health that I have. I also have the freedom to gather with other believers like we are right now. And I'm not worried at all about repercussions of us gathering here together this morning. I'm not worried about someone from the government coming through the doors and arresting us. Like that, I just have this level of safety and freedom in my life. My life overall is pretty enjoyable. I would say it's, it's fun. Like, yeah, I have bad days and maybe bad seasons, but I like the life that I have right now. Now, not only do I have all of these things, I have health, I have wealth and safety, freedom, happiness, uh, but if I'm honest with you and myself, many of my efforts in life are put towards keeping these things and asking God even to keep these things in my life. My kids are four, six, and eight, uh, and at dinner time, we, we pray and we have a little kind of Rolodex thing that has our missionaries that we support in it. And often we, we, whichever one's on the front, we pray for that missionary. We flip it over and the next evening at dinner, we'll pray for the next one. And, and we go through this. And so we always ask our kids, who wants to pray? And I'll tell you what, our four-year-old daughter, um, she, she will fight her brothers until there is blood, like so that she can be the one to pray. Every single night, she's like, I will, I will. And if the brothers like pray, if we're like, hey, you know what, Junie, we're going to let Reuben pray. It's been like two weeks since he's been able to pray because you take it every time. He'll pray and he says amen and she starts in. She, like, she just prays after him. She's like, you're not taking this away from me. Now, I love that a little bit, right? Like that's a good problem to have. Um, but here's the thing. Like when she prays, I have found myself more and more beginning to cringe. And it's not because... She's not good at praying or anything like that. It's not because she isn't using the, the right words or, or these, you know, holy, righteous things. It's because when she prays every single time, she prays for safety for our family. She prays that the next time we get in the car that we remain safe. And she prays that today would be a great day and we would all be happy. And then she starts praying for missionaries. And that's sweet. It is. But then she starts praying for missionaries, and our missionary cards, they actually say, like, what some of their prayer requests are. And I know them personally, and I know what their prayer requests are. And she prays that they would stay safe. 
And she prays that they would be happy and have a good time. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I actually know for a fact that the majority of these missionaries would be saying, please do not actually pray that. Pray that doors would be opened. Pray that we would have favor to speak to people about Jesus. You know, and, and like the way that they pray is just so different. And so when I say that I cringe, it's because I'm realizing that I do some of those same things. Now, here's the thing. I've actually even gone as far as trying to tell her not to pray for those things. I am trying to teach her to pray differently. And even in that, she still defaults and goes to that. What does that say about us? It says, like, this is our default. When we have happiness, when we have safety, when we have health, when we have wealth, our default is to try and keep that. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say that that's necessarily always wrong. Like I said, this is a process that I'm going through here. But I know that this is different from me and the majority of Christians in the world. This is different from me and the early church. And I can't help but wondering how much of this plays into it. I read stories of people being thrown in jail and they pray that they would have the strength to stand up for God and not falter in their faith. When we went through Alpha, there was this story of these two women in, in Iran who they just, they start going around and handing out, they, they at night put Bibles on people's doorsteps or, you know, they're kind of equivalent of a, of a mailbox. And eventually they both get arrested and they're in uh, cells next to each other with a solid wall, but there's a little hole and they're talking to each other. And the whole time they're, they're just reciting scripture and praying that they would stand strong and that they wouldn't falter. And I think about putting myself in that spot and what would my prayers look like? I'd be praying that I get released. Right? I'd be praying like scripture of like, hey, remember when Peter was, you know, miraculously led out of the jail and all the doors swung open? God, do that for me. Like that, I think that's my default that I would go to. Like, what would be your default if you're sitting in jail and your only crimes you're telling people about Jesus? You know, but when I hear these people and the way that they pray, it's just, it's so incredibly different. And this is where this massive tension lies. Why is it that my focus seems to be so different? Why is it that even when I try and teach my kids not to pray for safety and happiness, that's, that's the natural way that we go? Emily and I were talking a week or so ago, and, and I was saying how when we, when we spend time with missionaries that come in, uh, they just always seem to have this different level of joy than I feel like the rest of us kind of do sometimes. Or, okay, I'll put this back on me. They have a different level of joy than I do. And, and Emily's response was something like, you know, it probably has to do with the fact that they've just gotten done selling everything they have and they're planning on following God wherever he leads them. I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. Like, think of in a moment, everything that you had, you no longer had to worry about trying to hang on to or increase. And instead, you just are following God. Like, I think there's a level of joy that comes with that. And I think I can almost sum up the attitude that they seem to have, um, and I seem to, to lack having in one scripture passage. So I want to read this. I want to read this one passage, then look at kind of the passages around it, and gain some insight into the tension and problem that seems to be so prevalent. All right, so I want us just to get ready, like, over the next few weeks here, I want to be ready for my worldview to be changed and, and to be rocked. All right? I, I want to be open to really feeling challenged by God and for him to lead me 
to a deeper level of commitment that is based so much more on him and less on my life. All right, so let's do this. If you're willing, if you're able, would you stand with me? I want to read this passage out of 2 Philippians. We're going to start in verse 16. Hold firmly to the, wor- to the word of life. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. God, I pray uh, this morning, Lord, that this would not be anything that is guilt-driven. God, anything that feels guilty inside of me, inside of us, God, that that would just begin to be removed. Lord, instead, that that your spirit would be able to speak to us clearly. God, that it wouldn't be guilt-driven. But Lord, that that we do give you permission to convict us, to, to challenge us in different ways. God, I pray that this is something that would be joyful for us, we'd be excited about and not be worried about losing different things and, and giving things up, God. So we, we just want to hear your voice this morning. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. As Kyle and I have been talking about this series and going through this, Kyle is the, the pastor that leads the church in Sox Center. Um, as we've kind of walked through this, we've both been feeling this tension like in our lives. And Kyle does a lot more reading in his spare time than I do. Uh, and much of the reading over this past year for him has actually been reading biographies of missionaries. If you ever want your world to kind of be rocked, like read biographies of people that have given up everything and gone to other places and the things that they've seen God do. Um, and, and just kind of the persecution that happens. One of the books that he read uh, is actually a book from my time when I was at school that they had assigned to us. And it's called uh, The Heavenly Man. All right? And it's about a believer in China that goes through all sorts of, of terrible persecution in his life. All right? And he has spent so much of his life in prison just because he was telling people about Jesus. Uh, and his time in prison is absolutely crazy, these different things that happen. But he actually, in one spot in the book, he tells the story of another believer as well. I want to read this excerpt and kind of share this story uh, because this is one of those places that I feel like I'm just so far away from this. All right, now I'm not saying this is the example that every single one of us has to live, but I want us to let this tension kind of sit. So it says, Sister Yoon Mengen came from one of the wealthiest families in Shanghai. She was a widow with two young children, a son aged 11 and a daughter 9, when she was imprisoned in 1967. After a year in prison, the PSB thought they would have compassion on her. The chief warden said, this past year, you've shown excellent conduct, so now we plan to reward you. All you have to do is write a confession of your crimes, and you'll be free to go home and take care of your children. Surely, your God would want you to take care of your own flesh and blood. The authorities arranged for her children to visit the prison. As soon as Sister Yoon saw them, her heart was torn and tears of love welled up in her eyes. Remember, she's a widow. There's no one else at home. The authorities asked her, what do you want, your Jesus or your children? If you want Jesus, you'll stay in prison. If you want your children, you can go home. They gave her a pencil and a piece of paper and asked her to write down her choice. When they read what she had written, they were amazed to find she had stated in large words, Jesus cannot be replaced. Even my own children cannot replace Jesus. 
Sister Yoon chose to stay in prison. The warden shouted, listen, you kids, your mother has rejected you. She doesn't love you. Sister Yoon was sentenced to a further 23 years in prison. When she was released in 1981, her son was 34 years old and worked in a government job in Tibet. Sister Yoon hadn't seen either of her children even once in all of those intervening years. Her son had been taken by the state and raised in atheistic schools and had been told his old mother had disowned him. Many Christians had visited and shared the gospel with him, but he always responded by saying, your Jesus took my mother away from me. Why would I believe in him? When she got out of prison, she went to Tibet and found her son. Um, and on her basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm your mother, he begins to scream at her and shout and says, I, I don't have a mother. And he shoves her away and he pushes her out of his house. And she never sees him again. And I read stories like this, and I'm like, okay, again, let, let's find the right spot in this tension. This is not about guilt. But I can honestly say there's something different about my faith versus Sister Yoon's faith. I'm not in the same place that she is. And I don't know how to respond when I read these. And these things, they sound so horrible and like so distant and far away, like that would never be me. But we have to be able to find a way to actually like pull this in and, and let this tension sit with us. All right, there's another book. It's, it's a missionary from Minnesota. For the last 30 years, has been ministering in the Arab world to Muslims. Uh, and in 2019, they moved to a new country, one of basically the hardest, most dangerous, difficult places in our world. All right, and this book uh, that he's written that I've kind of just started reading uh, is a journal from his first year there. All right, and I want to read this short little thing. He says, I spent yesterday writing letters for Jennifer, my sons, my family, and my colleagues in case I miss the significant events of their life. God knows, and I'm content to let him decide. What we do is... What we do know is that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth everything. We are his currency. He will spend us as he sees fit. If my life can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. If my death can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I do not know what he will choose for me, but this I know, to be with Jesus is far better. So at the end of this, he quotes the Apostle Paul. When Jesus said, count the cost of following me, like these are people that have counted the cost. And let me just say, their cost is far greater than the cost of anyone in our country to follow Jesus. What I begin to wonder, is it because the cost has become so low for us? Is that part of the problem? Like the cost for some of us is, well, if I just... I give up an hour and a half once a month and show up to church. Like, that's the cost. Again, I'm not looking for guilt in this. The cost that people make over there, walking away from family, the cost of their own life, like, it, it is just a different level. And if I'm honest with myself, I don't know that I can say that I have poured my life out for God as an offering as what Paul says in Philippians 2. Or the way that this person said it in his journal, that I am God's currency, spend me how you like. And I want to take the rest of the time today to quickly go through a few things from that passage. We're going to do this quick. All right? And, and I think some of these things might kind of help us 
realize and point out some areas uh, that at least for me, I, I think I need to begin to work on and begin to change in some of this. All right, so we are looking at Philippians 2, and we're going to go kind of, it's, it's the whole chunk, verses 1 to 18. This one verse is what really kind of uh, jumped out for us, but as we began to read around it, so much of this we felt like applied to this. And So Philippians is the letter that's, that's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. He actually writes it while he's in jail. He's under house arrest, and that may look a little different from what jail for us looks like, but like... He is saying this as he's counting the cost, all right? So we're going to have some points to write down if you're taking notes uh, that we're pulling from this passage. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Uh, like I said, this might be a little raw. This might be a little messy. This is a process of kind of where, where I'm at and trying to figure some of this out. So start in verse 12 with me. I'm reading a New Living Translation. Uh, but then as soon as I read this, I'm going to talk about a different translation that I think gets a better idea of it. So it says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. All right, now when you read it in this translation, uh, it almost sounds like you have to like kind of show the good things in order to be saved. Um, but that doesn't really line up with what Paul says other places. I want to read out of NIV real quick. I think this is a better idea for us. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. What Paul is saying here is that your growth, how you live as a Christian, is your responsibility. It's not the churches. It's not a pastor's. Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. He hasn't been there. He says, I'm not there to hold your hand. This is something for you to work out. And, and basically, you need to work out what does it practically look like every single day to follow Jesus. This is what you need to work out. You should be asking yourself consistently and constantly, what is the best way to live this out? All right, so here's the point that I want us to write down, and, and this is kind of the basis for this whole series in a way. Like, we should feel tension as we try to figure out the best way to follow Jesus. We should. If, if there is any moment where I don't feel tension in my life, where I think I've got it all figured out, I just have to keep going on like this, put it on autopilot, if there's no tension in following Jesus and how that interacts with the world around me in my life, I'm missing something. I should be feeling tension. I think many times we think that tension is a sign of immaturity. Instead, we should have everything figured out. But I'm going to argue that I believe tension is actually a sign of maturity. That when you feel tension and you're wondering, is this the best thing? Was that the best way for me to interact with someone in my family? Was that the best way for me to interact with a coworker? I'm not really sure about that. You can see the humility that comes through there. As long as we are still living, we should be changing and hopefully improving. All right, and then that is why we're doing this series. Okay, let's, let's keep moving. Verse 3 and 4 out of Philippians 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then Paul goes into talking about Jesus as the example of this, then jump down to verse 14. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. All right, the main idea right here behind this, and, and I'm starting to think one of the main ideas behind the difference between me and other people around the world is this second point. It's pride and humility. It's selfishness and selflessness. 
So point number two, humility is necessary when following Jesus. And pride needs to be eradicated at every turn. Okay, now I specifically chose the word eradicated. At first it came to my mind, and I'm like, why am I thinking that? So then I go over and I switch over to Merriam-Webster and I type it in. Okay, what is, I think I know what eradicated means, but what does it actually mean? Eradicated means to grab something by the roots and pull it out. Because actually the root of the word eradicated, radix, is, it meant root. So eradicated is to grab something and not just pull it out and maybe there's still some there. It it is to dig it out completely. Pride needs to be eradicated from my life at every single moment. Every morning when I wake up, every instance that I have, I should be looking for pride creeping in because it creeps in in a lot of different ways. Kyle was telling me this last week. He said, you know, I deal with pride way differently than other people do. He said, I don't like the spotlight on me. He said, but I've realized this. One of my sources of pride is the fact that I drive this junker car. And he said, I wear that as a badge, that I've been driving the same vehicle, and this vehicle is terrible. If you roll the window down, you can't roll it back up. Someone has to, like, push the window back up as you're doing it. You also cannot open from the passenger side door. So when him and I drive places, he has to get out and come around like my chauffeur and open up the door for me or remember to roll the window down before he shuts the car off. Like, it's, it's not a good car. And he's like, I'm realizing that's a source of pride. He's like, most people would not look at that car and think pride. But pride shows up in different ways in all of our lives. And it's there. And it's nasty. And it's hard to get rid of. But this is something we need to do. One of the verses that scares me the most is Proverbs 3, and then it's quoted again in James and in 1 Peter, and it just says, God opposes the proud. All right, I, I don't ever want God to not be with me, let alone beyond that, opposing me. Can you imagine that? God is opposing the proud. And yet, I don't know if there's a greater issue in America than just pure pride and the way that it finds its way into everything. And then the self-centeredness, this idea of safety and wealth and happiness, so much of it stems from being self-centered, thinking about what's best for us. Sometimes we try and get around it and we say, well, no, I'm thinking about what's best for my kids. I want my kids to have the best opportunity. I want my kids to have all of this. I want my kids to have more than what I have. Let me just say, I, I still think that at the root of that is a selfishness and a self-centeredness. I don't think we get off the hook by saying, my kids aren't me, so it can't be selfish. Something that doesn't sit well with me is, is the massive importance that we put on our families. And this is, a, this is a messy area, all right? Families are important, and we need to invest in our families. But more and more, I, I believe that we have made the, our families an idol in America. I really do. I believe that we can take that too far. In the story earlier, Mrs. Yoon said, Jesus cannot be replaced, not even by my own children. All right, and I don't have a great answer for us on this. Like, where's the line? Where's too far? Where isn't? But that's okay, because that's where tension comes in. We should be feeling this tension around it. All right, verses 9 and 11 
uh, 9 through 11. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names and that that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the third point. The ultimate purpose for all of creation is to glorify God. All of creation. This is my ultimate purpose. This is your ultimate purpose. This is actually creation's ultimate purpose is to glorify God. And where I see this play out so often is when I listen to, to people pray. When I go to a conference, we went to one, uh, a prayer and fasting time uh, this last fall. And one of the speakers is this missionary that's lived in India for so long. And just as he begins to talk about this, the way that he prays, whether it's opening up a service, closing it, anything, it is all so focused on, God, we just want you to be glorified. Whatever it takes. Whatever that looks like, whatever it means, we want you to be glorified. That is a different prayer. That's a, that's a different focus. I want to live in a way that everything about me in my life points to him. That nothing is about me or my credit and, and it's all about his. And this is why our series is called Glory. Uh, I think we're going to continue on this idea a little bit more in the future here. But how often do we fight for the glory? We actually want the glory. We want the credit. We want people to see how hard we are working. Instead of just being in the background and, and, and having everything point to God. All right, last point. We're going to wrap it up. Verse 17. This is the verse that started all of this for me. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. So write this down. My life should be poured out like an offering to God. Now what does that look like? What does that mean? I'm God's currency. He can spend me however he pleases. If our purpose is to glorify God, if that is above all else our, our reason for being here, then, then he is worthy of all of my life. He is worthy of me pouring my life out, emptying myself of anything that's inside of me, anything that's self-centered. He is worthy of every minute, of every day, of every year. And Paul is alluding to something here as he says this um, from the Old Testament called a drink offering. All right, and it's... We don't do offerings anymore in the same way. This doesn't always make sense. But a drink offering was, was usually wine that was being poured out over the altar. Now something that's interesting as I was kind of digging into this. Most offerings in the Old Testament, they would say, okay, burn this up or do this, give this. But then they'd hold back a certain amount for the priests. Right? Like you've probably read that before in a lot of the offerings. Like save this and this has to be eaten or this should be set aside for the priests. An interesting thing about a drink offering, nothing was held back. All of it was poured out. Every last drop. So when Paul is, is alluding here to this drink offering and that my life should be poured out, it, it gives me this image of every last drop. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Literally every last drop poured out for you and for me. Alright, let's do this. Let's Let's stand together and, and I want to just kind of bring this to an end here.
like I said, I don't have a great way of wrapping this up. Like this series is going to be a little more raw than I think what we usually do. Um, But I know this. I know that as we begin to go through this, there, there is something in me that shouldn't be there. And there seems to be a lot of it. And I don't really completely understand what that is, how to get rid of it, any of that, but I, I want to pursue that. And I don't want this to be guilt driven for any of us. Like right now, if you're able to kind of check, like, what are you feeling? If you feel any amount of guilt, just dismiss that. that that's, guilt does not come from God. All right, guilt and conviction are two different things. Is there conviction? I'll tell you right now, I have a whole lot of conviction in my life because that, that's why I feel this tension. Something isn't right. And God, I want to be open to you highlighting this and pointing this out. You know, do, does this mean that every single one of us has to sell everything we have and move across the world? No, I don't think so. But as you read through scripture, there are time after time after time where God actually warns his followers about the situation that we are in. In Deuteronomy, they're going into the promised land and Moses says, he says, don't forget your God. When you're in the promised land, when you have everything you need, when everything's taken care of, when it's this amazing land and everything is great, don't forget about God who brought you through the desert, who provided for you, gave you the water, gave you the manna, all these things. Because when you live in excess, it's easy to forget. And this continually happens through scripture. And Jesus talks about this in the same way. And we see this moment with a a, a rich young ruler. And he says, sell everything you have. That's the last thing you have to do. And he walks away. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's one of these weird passages we don't know what to do. And I've heard, I've heard American pastors excuse it away at different times. Well, actually, you know, the, the eye of a needle, that, that was also a phrase that was used for this little door. And, and, and basically, it's ways of excusing away, like, nah, I don't think that actually means it. Now, what I do know is this. In that moment, when Jesus is speaking to the, the rich young ruler, he sees something in his heart. So I know, he doesn't say that to everybody. Jesus' ministry is funded by people. People that had to have money for Jesus to continue to move around the countryside and do things. And he doesn't seem to say it to other people, but in this moment, it was a heart issue for him. So I do think there is a way for us to find the balance in this tension. I'm not saying that all of us are terrible because we live in America and we all have houses over you know, our head and, and all these different things. I'm saying there's a way for us to live in that. But this is a tension that we should be wrestling through. What does it look like? So I want to do this. I'm just, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I want this to kind of sit with us. And this week, I hope that it kind of bothers you a little bit. Because I'll tell you what, it's going to bother me a lot. (laughs) As I continue to try and press into this. Not in a guilt way. But just in a way where we desire to pour our lives out like a drink offering for God. Jesus, we just pray right now. 
Lord, that you would continue to guide us, continue to speak to us. Lord, lead us in this area. God, I, I have seen you bless people and have favor upon them in a way where the things that they have have, have grown. God, and I don't think that that in and of itself is, is always a bad thing. But Lord, where is this tension? What is it that we're supposed to do? What is the responsibility that we have to steward the things that you've given us? God, don't let us continue to uh, chase after you in ways that at the end of this, we're going to say, I ran the race in vain. God, instead, we want to be led closer to you. God, we want to have an attitude that reflects yours. So God, we just ask that over the next few weeks here that you begin to uh, speak in us, speak in our hearts, speak to us, guide us. God, point things out, highlight things in our life where maybe we aren't quite getting it. So God, we, we ask this in your name. Amen.